0: Hey, good morning, Wellspring. Aaron here. I'm in my living room. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Hey, you know what? If you can right now, go ahead, put your phone away. Try to put away as many distractions as you can. Go ahead, grab a Bible. I believe God's going to really speak to us this morning and do some really beautiful things today. And before I actually pass it off to Adam and Monica, they're actually going to be leading worship for us from their home I thought it'd be really good for all of us, wherever you're at, however you're watching this, to all just take a moment to say the Lord's Prayer together as we enter into worship. So wherever you're at, we'll have the words here up on the screen. Why don't we all say the Lord's Prayer together as we begin our time. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
1: welcome you to our house. Uh, it's from the Treyback family. Hi! Hi. Uh, we just want to say welcome, glad to be with you this morning. So one of the things we want to do this morning as we worship Jesus and lean into his word uh, is pass the peace of Christ. Uh, so traditionally that's like you give someone a hug, a high five, and you say peace of Jesus be with you. Uh, if you're confused about that, Josiah and Claire are going to model what that's like. Peace be with you. There you go. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk down uh, into our basement where our, where my prayer room slash office slash athletic director's office is. And uh, I'm going to give you guys 60 seconds to pass the peace of Christ. See you in a few minutes. Hey everyone, I want to welcome you to Wellspring. Hope you're having an awesome morning in your house. My name's Tony. I'm the pastor here at Wellspring. I want to welcome you this morning. Now if you have kids, uh, you should see a little link below and Trish, who's our kids ministry director, is going to be telling a kind of like a kids ministry story time. So uh, if you have another screen, maybe you can set your kids up with that. If not, we also have uh, some age appropriate sermon notes for kids, uh, you can see those on the link below. Now, as you may know, right, this is uh, Palm Sunday and soon next week will be Easter and I've had a number of people ask me like, how are we doing Easter in the shadow of COVID-19? This just doesn't seem like it works, it doesn't make sense. And I get it. I totally get it. And yet, I've been thinking a lot about this. Because I'm remembering back to the first two or three hundred years of church history. Right? The Christians aren't meeting in big churches. They're not having these big glorious celebrations with hundreds of people. They're meeting in homes. Right? Because they're under the threat of persecution. I'm even thinking around the world right now in war zones as Christians meet. Right? They meet in homes for Easter, to remember the hope of Easter. I'm even thinking right now on the Turkish border as refugees gather, right? They don't have big facilities or awesome worship gatherings, right? They're meeting in hope in their homes, much like we are these days in the shadow of COVID-19. Now this morning is Palm Sunday and Palm Sunday, I think is really about our expectations. Because as we'll lean into the story, what we'll see is that the the crowd gathered, right, is full of a lot of understanding, but it's also missing a lot of the pieces. There's great insight, but also great misunderstanding. Let's turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, I want to start in verse 29. And what we see is Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He draws near to Bethpage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives. This is what Luke tells us. And now if you're a first century person, you're thinking, okay, like this, he's just giving me the mile markers, right? So if you were going to do a trip, let's say to San Francisco, you'd say, well, first we got to San Jose and then Palo Alto. uh, And then right, the next step It's kind of like giving us these mile markers on the journey. Two, I want to say uh, he's coming up from Jericho, right? So this is an 18 mile ride from Jericho up into Jerusalem. It's 3,300 feet of elevation gain. You're going from a desert. And this is Passover season, right? So tons of people are converging in Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of people are converging in Jerusalem. And as you go up from the desert up to Bethpage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, it's getting increasingly green to the point that you get to the top. And then you can see the city of Jerusalem, the pilgrims gathered, for the festival. And this is where Jesus goes, and this is what it is like when He arrives. Luke says in verse 30 this. To, Jesus says to His disciples, right, Go into the village in front of you. We are on entering. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, right? The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as He had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The colt, the Lord has need of it." Right? And they brought it to Jesus. and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. Now you might be wondering, right why is there five verses dedicated to this donkey? It seems kind of odd, right? Like what is the big deal? Well, the truth is, right it's not just a donkey, it's a colt. And Luke is actually being an incredibly intentional here. You see, the people of Israel were hoping and waiting for a king, and they were currently ruled by Rome, and they're hoping that God's king, his Messiah, will come kick Rome out and establish a new kingdom. And they also are familiar with their prophets of old, and there's this prophet named Zechariah who said that God would come, right? And as he came, as his enthronement happened, well, let's just listen to him. This is Zechariah nine. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, right? See, the crowd knows this. This is written in their scriptures. The king is going to come and he's going to be riding what? A colt, a donkey, just like the donkey Jesus is on. And the crowd knows it. And Jesus knows it. And he's like, let's grab the donkey and let's do it. And then verse 36, right? The crowd see him. John, uh, one of the other Gospels, he says this, the crowd took palm branches and went out to meet him. And this is John 12, 13. This is why it's called Palm Sunday. This is how Luke tells the scene. And he rode along and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, right, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, if the president came to town, you wouldn't like run out there and grab a branch, you know, from a cypress, and you wouldn't throw your jacket on the ground. Right? That's not our culture. But in their culture, this makes sense. Right? So when Jehu in 2 Kings 9.13 is made king, the crowds take off their cloaks and they throw them on the ground. More importantly, the crowd is taking Psalm 118 as a guide. And this was a psalm that was sung as kings were enthroned on their way to Jerusalem. Let me read for you verses 26 and 27. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with boughs or branch in hand. Join in the festal... Festal procession up to the horns of the altar, right? And the altar is in the temple. So they're basically saying, grab a palm branch and welcome the king, right? So they find a branch. This is from a palm tree in my backyard and it had fallen on the ground, right? And they're grabbing these and they're waving them saying, praise be to God. Blessed is the king. Right. And in a culture right, that expected the king to arrive, the Messiah to come, right, they've been marinating for the last week in the Passover. Right? And the Passover is all about Pharaoh, right, their oppressor, being kicked out, and then God forming his own people. And they're marinating in that story, and they're thinking about Zechariah and God coming in and establishing a king, and here is Jesus and they believe Jesus is the one that's going to do it, and they're celebrating. And what we'll see is that they have great insight. Jesus is king. But they also have profound misunderstanding about his kingdom and what is going to happen next. They get it, and they don't. They desire a king, but their expectations of what this king will be like are profoundly off. In the midst of this, in the midst of all the celebrating, not everyone is even happy. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them they're wrong. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees at this point have already plotted Jesus' death. And now they're telling him, man, stop your disciples. And Jesus, sort of in this witty comment, he's like, you know what, like, your hearts are harder than stones because even these stones will worship me, but your heart is so hard you resist. Jesus is also sort of making, I think, an allusion to the fact that the destiny of all things are created to praise him, right? But even the crowd who worships him doesn't get all these impulses, doesn't get all these nuances. What we see so far is the crowd is here, right? And they're wanting to make Jesus king. But what we also see is the, you know, the Pharisees are out here. And they're trying to get him to get the, the crowd, the disciples, to stop. So you have a few different reactions and responses on this Palm Sunday. And what we'll see is in the days to come, there's all kinds of responses, ways that people respond to Jesus. Right? Within a few days, Judas, one of Jesus' apprentices, who he's lived with and traveled with for three years, is going to betray him for money. Peter, one of his closest disciples and friends, is going to say that he doesn't even know him. And the crowd, right? this crowd who says, yes, make him king. In a few days will shout before Pilate as they have the opportunity to free Jesus versus a known murderer named Barabbas. They shout, right, on one day, blessed be the king, and in a few days they will shout, crucify him. Take it on its own. Palm Sunday is like this beautiful high point in a way. Right. Jesus is celebrated as the coming King, which is true, but in, lit, in light of Good Friday, right, Palm Sunday loses some of its you know, worshipfulness, its celebratory quality, right? Because Jesus will be tortured and executed. On Palm Sunday, there's great insight, but there's also profound misunderstanding. N.T. Wright, who's a famous British theologian, this really, really smart guy, he says this, he's pretty confident Right, the 80% of what he knows is is right on, nailed it, and 20% is probably wrong. The thing is, right? He doesn't know what 20% is the wrong percent, is the wrong information, and I think that's kind of what's happening here on Palm Sunday, right? The crowd they get the Zechariah reference, yeah, he's on a donkey. They get the Psalm 118 allusion, they get that Jesus is going to be king, right? But they totally miss. The way of the cross. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder, what are we missing, right? How do we, how do we not follow the example of the crowd that one day is saying, blessed be the name of the king, you know, blessed be God, and then the next day is saying, crucify him. How do we avoid what Peter does, where he's like, yes, God, I will do anything. I'll worship and praise you, right? And then in a few days he says, I don't even know you. Personally, I feel like mixed emotions about Palm Sunday. Should I celebrate? Should I mourn? How should I respond? What's interesting is that Luke tells us how Jesus responds. As the crowd is excited, as the Pharisees are resisting. Verses 41 to 42, this is what Jesus says. This is what Luke records. And when he drew near, that's Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Right? See, the crowd expects to see a king and the overthrow of the Romans. Right? The Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to stop this nonsense. And Jesus, he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps for the city. He laments. The crowd expects to bask in the glory of this victory over Rome. And as Jesus moves towards Pilate and the Roman guards that will whip and torture and execute him, he weeps. The thing is, right, there's not just reactions on Palm Sunday, right? Crown or stop or prayer, Right. There's also Palm Sunday kind of needs to be understood right, in light of the rest of the week. Right. You have Palm Sunday, right, but you also have Easter or uh, Good Friday, right, which profoundly reveals the love of God. And then you also have Easter Sunday, right And the empty tomb, which reveals a lot about the hope and the power of God. You have all these responses, you have Good Friday, you have Easter Sunday, and I think when looked at in light of this whole week, what you see is that Palm Sunday really asks us, who are we worshiping? Who are we following? And are our expectations aligning with God's plan? Are our expectations and hope aligned with what God is doing in us and in the world? Right, on Palm Sunday, what we see is that the crowds are shaped by a culture that formed them into a people that just wanted them, God, to come to kick out Rome so they could ride the gravy train to victory. The thing is, that's not our culture and those aren't our assumptions, right? That's not our cultural moment, right? Instead, right now, we are living in a moment. And I ask people, right, in the shadow of COVID-19, I ask people that are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and no one says to me, you know what, when I was, or this remember, reminds me of this time. Everyone says the same thing. I've never seen anything like this. Importantly, we also live in a Western secular context. And the meaning of life in this Western secular context and culture right, is founded upon the ability of the individual to have the freedom to choose Whatever makes him or her most happy. Now there's some advantages to this script. You get to follow your dreams. You get to decide on your future, what you care most about. But the thing is, this script is powerless in the face of COVID-19 and suffering more generally. Tim Keller writes this in Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. In this worldview, the one thing to do with suffering is to avoid it at all costs. Or if it is unavoidable, manage and minimize the emotions of pain and discomfort as much as possible. And we get that, right? Minimize it. Pretend like it's not as bad as it is or whatever. The thing is, right, when something like COVID-19 happens and our way of life is profoundly disrupted, it's easy to fall in this Western, secular, culturally sort of cultural script on how to approach difficult times. And basically the script is, hey, my life was going like this. Now it's interrupted. So now my life is like on hold. It's kind of like imagine you're trying to catch a plane, right? And as you're trying to catch that plane, right, it's delayed. So now you're waiting in the airport. I think a lot of us feel this way. It's like, well, I'm going to wait for my plane to arrive. I'm just going to kind of wait it out, much like you might wait out a blizzard. But this is the thing. Just as the, the Jewish people fell into a dominant cultural script on what the Messiah and the King would look like, I think we can fall into this kind of on-hold script and miss out actually on some profound transformation that God might have for us in this season. Tim Keller again, he writes this. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with Him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. Believers understand many doctrinal truths in the mind, but those truths seldom make the journey down into the heart except through disappointment, failure, and loss. Sometimes the deepest work that God does is actually through seasons of discomfort, seasons where we are challenged, even more so than seasons of stability. Right? This is one of the reasons, actually, that the Bible focuses so much on transformation that has forded us through affliction. Peter writes this. He's writing it to a people that are struggling. He says this, 1 Peter 1, through 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's saying, hey, if for a bit you're suffering, hold on to this. And this is what he says. So that, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is f- suffering, adversity, times of difficult fu- difficulty function like a furnace. So when Jeannie and I got married, right, we had rings that we exchanged, Right? And this ring is a precious metal, but it started out as a lump of ore. And what happened is, it was heated to the boiling point, some impurities came off the surface, it's allowed to cool down, and then it goes through this process again and again and again until it is, right, this pure metal, this refined metal, right, that becomes this wedding ring that we wear on our fingers. Right? And the same thing happens in the spiritual life when adversity comes our way. Right? Some impurities in us come to the surface. Right? They're taken off. We're allowed to cool back down. And through this process, right, our faith is purified. Our faith is refined. And the result is our transformation in God's glory as we image Him in the world more and more. Right, and what's important as we shelter in place on this Palm Sunday is to realize right, that the deepest and most profound work that God sometimes does in us is actually during these difficult times. And even less so sometimes during those times of stability and predictability, times where it feels less chaotic. This doesn't mean we have to like it. Right? Jesus weeps as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus asks in the Garden of Gethsemane, remove this cup from me. Right, Jesus cries from the cross, why have you forsaken me? We don't have to like it. But God does profound work through these seasons. Two things stand out to me about Jesus' approach to Holy Week, Passion Week, this last and hardest week of his life. One, Jesus is in an ongoing conversation with the Father throughout the whole process. From beginning to end. He's honest with him. What's going on? Two, Jesus is always submitting to the path that the Father unfolds before Him. Right? Rather than assuming you know, His life is over, He actually, through that season, through His death on the cross, actually does incredible stuff that we benefit from reconciling us to the Father. So I guess I wonder what it looks like for us to follow Jesus' example and Jesus' lead. Rather than assuming that our life is on hold... Adopting the dominant script of our culture just as the Jewish people adopted their dominant script and thought, "Wow, he's going to rescue us and the king is going to be established. Instead, Jesus takes the way of the cross. I wonder what it looks like for us to align our expectations with what God has for us to align our hearts and lives and mind with Jesus in this season that we might be transformed and God might be glorified. What would it look like if we actually leaned in? to God in this season? Even though we can't meet for church in person on Sunday morning, even though we can't meet in our well communities, even though we maybe feel isolated or lonely or disconnected, what could God maybe do in us in this season? what does it look like for us to align our expectations with Jesus under the shadow of COVID-19? What does it look like for us in this season to submit our lives to whatever possible furnace of transformation is coming our way. Two questions stand out to me. The first is this. What's really going on for you, right? We see in the text Jesus is honest with the Father throughout this week, his last and hardest week of his life. What does it look like for you to be honest with God in prayer in this week, right? Highs and lows, positives, negatives. What is honest and true that God, you know, invites you to talk with him about? If you look at the Psalms, they're full of praise and struggle, highs and lows. What does it look like for you to be honest this week? Two, um, right, Jesus is trying to f- transform you and me as we try and remain faithful to him under the shadow of COVID-19. Right? What is the refining work he wants to do in you in this season? Right? One of the advantages of one of the silver linings of these seasons that are so disruptive is they disrupt not only the things we come to expect, but also the ruts we get into spiritually. This is a season where maybe we can form new habits based on Jesus's invitation, right? Because our life is thrown off anyway. We can start new practices and new habits. What is God inviting you to do? And I think for some of us, some deep identity work around our anxiety and fear and stress and how we see ourselves. I think God wants to do some deeper work in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. What is the work Jesus wants to do in you? How does he want to refine you through this difficult season so that this stuff you know in your head makes it all the way down into your heart? Through this season, right, we don't waste a tragedy. We don't waste the difficulty of this season putting it on hold, but really leverage it that we might be transformed through it at the deepest levels of our person. I'm gonna take a moment just to kind of pray for us and then you'll see the screen will give you kind of 60 seconds and my hope during that time is you just have a sense of quiet and silence and I invite you as I pray and during that 60 seconds just to allow God to speak. And I invite you to write down one thing, write down one thing that you feel like God is inviting you to look at, to focus on. Pray with me. Jesus, in this space and in this time, we just say, God, we we don't know how to do this. God, I say in this moment, I feel like there's ways that I profoundly get it and there's ways that I'm missing it. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would help me to align with you Help me to follow you in this season. God, align my heart and my mind, not based on my expectations, but based on, God, your path, your will, your hope for this season. Jesus, give me ways to be honest with you in prayer. God, give me a path to follow that I might be transformed, even though this season is difficult, that I may be transformed more and more into your image. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.
0: Hey Wellspring, thanks again for joining us. Just want to remind us of a couple things happening in the life of our body. First, Good Friday, we're going to be having an online gathering again. We'd love to see you there. Also, throughout the week, we have a variety of different Zoom hangouts. We'd love to see you there as well. More information on our website. And then finally, if you're able to in this season, uh, if you're able to participate financially into the work God's doing here at Wellspring, we'd so appreciate that. You can mail a check or give online. Uh, But with that said, we just wanted to, as from our family to yours, say this blessing over you. So wherever you're at, maybe just put your feet flat on the floor, open up your hands as we just say this blessing together. May the, the peace of the Lord Christ go with you, wherever he, he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, and protect you through the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing, rejoicing At the wonders he has shown you, may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Amen. We'll see you soon, Wellspring.